Good morning, 2 Kings chapter 5 and following, starting in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the armies of the king of Syria, was a great man by his master and high in favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she had worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the little girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill a man and make him alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, and wash yourself in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus far better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He is, has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God and, he, and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules worth load of earth. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word. Open our hearts and minds to hear from you. Um, Lord, do your work. Fulfill your promise that you will not let your word return void. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, uh, steady. Today, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about steady, uh, what we can count on, three truths that we can count on in a world where everything seems to be shifting, yea, even constantly shifting. So we're going to look, I'll give it to you up front. God is in control, the church will prevail, and Jesus will return. That is the bulk of September. So today, God 
is in control. Is that easy to believe? Or does it seem far-fetched? Does it seem like it doesn't align with life in general or your life in particular uh, right now? Uh, Several decades ago, a man filed suit against God. And the charge that he brought against God was that God had done nothing in his 30-year fight against his former employer, U.S. Steel Corporation. That's what it was known as at the time. He also was asking that God would resurrect his mom, restore his youthfulness, and give him the musical skills of famous guitarist. According to uh, the, the, the plaintiff, Donald Drusky is his name, was his name. He, uh, the charge, if God didn't answer, didn't show up in court, that according to the civil procedures in federal court, that God would lose the lawsuit. The federal judge, you can imagine, dismissed the lawsuit. But what is frivolous and uh, newsworthy and funny, if you will, um, even though we're not like Donald Drusky, probably nobody in the room is going to actually file a lawsuit against God. When life doesn't line up the way we want it to, when we begin to lose control and life seems out of control, then like Ricky to Lucy, we look up to God and say, you've got some explaining to do. We want control. We build our lives, right? We accumulate money so that we can buy things and those things typically have doors that have locks and we have uh, accounts that have passwords and privacy settings and we want to make sure that the world and no one else could hurt us we want to minimize what people and the world can do to us and so it can be a life that's insular we, we want to minimize the the control the lack of control that we have and maximize at least the illusion of control. So we're talking to everybody. When we say God is in control, everybody needs to know this. And it's central for any follower of Christ to know this. God is in control. Does it seem like he's not at times? Absolutely. But this is a bedrock truth that you can count on. He's in control. Now, how many of people like control? You, you want to be in control. How many of you would maybe self-identify as a control freak? How many of you are sitting close to someone that you could identify them as a control freak? I could do some clinical studies and use some fancy verbiage on you today. And I thought I'd just show five photos real quick in succession here. And tell me if you, uh, what this does for you. When you vacuum, do you leave lines on the carpet like this? That's the way it should be, right? What about your lawn? These, these, are, uh, these are diagonal shapes on somebody's lawn. Is that the way you cut grass? What about this? What does this do for you? Does it make you sweat a little bit? Heart palpitations? Maybe you want to murder somebody? Do you have to have this? When you're in the room, family's with you, are you the person that has to possess this at all times? How about this? Do you have to, you have to be the one with your hands on the steering wheel? Early in our marriage, I realized, because Susan suddenly told me so, that I always had to have the remote control and always had to be the one that drives. And I thought the way to be like Jesus, who gave himself up, to put his interest of others above himself, is I will surrender that. And so I yielded myself so that Susan could possess the remote control and, and, and drive. And that experiment did not go well at all. So we're back to, to where we are now. But anyway, are you, anybody control freak? And all of us live our lives to have some form of control to say okay 
I can dictate. I can have my way with my plans. John Wood did a great job. We're going to, I know he read a lot of passage today, a lot of scripture in this story. It's really one of my favorite uh, stories in all the Old Testament. I know uh, David and Goliath and Daniel in the lion's den and some of these stories get all the pub, but I love this story as you'll see in a moment, just some really good things. And we'll put a few of the verses that John read on the, on the screen as we walk through this story. John is a Florida State fan, y'all know this. And last night, um, I text John. Now, he went to bed the night before at 8.45. He's like an old soul. John's much younger than me, but an old, old soul. He went to bed Friday night at 8.45, he told me. But last night around 11 o'clock, I text him when Florida State was playing Jacksonville State. And my text was just one word, bro. And they were only up by 10. And then right after I sent the text, they were only up by three. And then I thought they could get a, 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 a tying field goal and send this thing. And John's like, Robert, I need to go to bed. We got church tomorrow. I'm an old soul. I need to be in bed. I was in bed last night, 845. It's after 11. And I said, I said to John by text, I said, I'm, I'm praying for overtime for like five of them. And I thought there's just no way Jacksonville State's going to tie this game and send it to overtime. Of course, Florida State would win. Did y'all see this final play? Have you seen it? And Jacksonville State with six seconds left scores a touchdown. And John had no, there was nothing John could do as a fan. There's nothing John could do right now about this sermon illustration. He's just not in control. At the, now he could do something in between services, uh, maybe pay me to not use this at the 11 o'clock hour. But as a fan, there's nothing that he can do. There's nothing that you and I can do. And we got a lot of state and Ole Miss and Southern. We, we all can feel uh, John's pain there. But there's just things that we simply cannot control. God, you've got some explaining to do. When it's serious stuff beyond football, I kind of made a list of things, again, this is life in general, what we can't control. I'm sure you could add things. In fact, if you think of something, just shout it out to me if I can hear you. Here's some things we can't control, generally speaking. Other people's actions, other people's feelings, other people's opinions, other people's beliefs, other people. When we die, when other people die, the physical and mental limitations. You got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to have water, you got to have hope. Your privilege or lack of, you can't control the past, you can't control change, and you can't control outcomes. And it could be the last one. What's your big struggle on that list? What's the thing that stands out? Uh, for me, it's the last one. It's outcomes. That was very emotional for me to put on that list because I just want things to go. You know, you work hard and you pray fervently and you want this to happen. In the Bible, it's called fruit, but you can't dictate fruit. And I have to be reminded over and over again, just ask Susan. I got to be reminded over and over again. It's not about success. It's about faithfulness. It's not about achievement. It's about abiding. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I need to play my part and abide in the vine and just to be a branch and to receive nourishment from him. And I can't control every outcome. Those are things we can't control. What does that do for you? It gets your attention, doesn't it? It gets your attention and makes you think, man, you need something outside yourself. Because it can be very depressing. And it can be a reminder of how hard life is when we have so little to do with so many outcomes. And the people thing, y'all, I mean, the people thing's it. Like the people thing, you can, you can do well and be successful and achieve things. But if you get the people thing wrong, then you've gotten it all wrong. You get the people thing right, then you can compensate for a lot of lack of achievement. A lot of, 
lack of dollars or success. You agree with that? Truly, truly. But the people thing is a big thing. And so much of that we can't control. I used to have a lot of theories about parenting. I was ready to write a parenting book before I had kids. And then I had three kids and I've got no more theories. I love them all. They're, they're great kids. But I don't have all the theories that I had. And if you come to me looking for advice on parenting, I'll drop some general principles. But I tell you to fall on your knees and pray and love them and love them and love them and value the relationship because it's, it, I just can't think of anything that humbles us more. My kids used to be cute little sermon illustrations and now they have minds of their own. Here's what you can control. Some of y'all are feeling better right now, right? You've like putting your hands on the steering wheel again. You can control living by your values. A buddy said the other day, don't choose friends who have the same interests, choose friends who have the same values. What a difference the trajectory of your life could take if that was true. You can, you can control who you spend time with, how you spend time, how you treat people, where you put your energy, expressing gratitude. Oh, what a big one. Being present, being open to opportunities. You can control your actions and reactions, and you can control your mindset. So control freaks, have some joy there. You can hold the wheel. You can have the remote control. Those are some things that you can, you can lead, you can, you can work with. And those are good things. Let's look at this story. This is a story, I, t- I tell you, it's one of my favorites because of Naaman, this guy, because of how it folded out, how the story unfolds. And in verse 1, it says this, just to go back again. Naaman, he's a commander of the army of king of Syria. He's, listen to the words that speak of being a, an insider or a VIP. He's a great man, boom, with his master. He's in high favor, boom, a celebrity, if you will. Because by him, the Lord had given victory, boom, to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, boom. But he was a leper. The ultimate insider was on the cusp of being an ultimate outsider. Leprosy, there was no cure and it was believed to be highly contagious. It was the great disease of the day. It would start like it did with Naaman. It would start with a small spot. A lot of things start with something small, don't they? Both good and bad. This really great thing happened. This really terrible thing happened. But it started. You can look back to something small. Just a small spot. And that's what happened. That's what was happening with him. And leprosy, it would be a, oftentimes a white patch of skin, and it would spread, and it would deaden nerve endings. Hair would fall out before baldness was cool and in. Hair would fall out. It would spread, and it would start attacking not just your physical appearance, uh, but it would start attacking organs. And the, there was people who had it in its extremities, in its latter stages, uh, had grotesque facial features just think of um, like a flesh-eating bacteria and what would happen when people had leprosy they were they were banished they were they were they were actually outcast and instead of uh, calling someone by their name if, if a leper was in the city and was about to be sent out of the city people would call out they would call out leper 
Leper, could you imagine being labeled like that? Some of you, some of us struggle with labels that we've been given, a past sin or a physical feature you have or a, a character trait that maybe you're not fond of or embarrassed about and maybe you've been labeled by that. Could you imagine every time being labeled, being called out when someone sees you in the public square, they just call out that one, leper, not by your name. How sweet is it to have your name called? I, I was on a run last night and I passed someone and they called my name, they recognized me said, hey, Robert, it was just sweet. I know super simple, but just sweet to have my name called to be recognized. But if you had leprosy, your name didn't matter anymore. You didn't matter anymore. People wanted to stay away from you. And there were so many that were deported to be outside of the city gates. It was social distancing long before we observed six feet of it in our world. It was get out of the city. So again, saying it again, an ultimate insider was on the cusp of becoming an ultimate outsider, a great man, a man who had known victory, a mighty man of valor, one who had curried the king's favor. And here he is with a life about to take a cruel and twisted turn. Next up, verses two and three, we're introduced. This is just like God working in ways that we don't expect. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Can I just say, this is, this is human trafficking. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. A humble servant girl that God's gonna use. One more time, I wanna say it. God works truly in ways that are strange. Some of us dismiss a strange occurrence and think, oh, we got to remove ourselves from it. We got to sweep it under the rug. We got to act, you know, we got to reconstruct it, redefine it. But that strange occurrence could be God beginning his work. Now, even though John read several other passages, let's skip down to verse 9 and 10, I believe it is. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. Remember, a very militant time, a very violent time. Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Up next, 11, verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Isn't that what we want, the waving of the hand? Like you're in a, you're in a tough spot and you want it to be easy. Remember Staples, the office company, their commercial, the easy button? Like we want the easy button. We want the wave. Back to verse 10 or just thinking about what we read before 11 there in the story. You think Naaman would want this. You think he would want the cleansing, that he would accept the offer. He would jump into it, but he wants something grand. He didn't want the humble cure. He wants the grand gesture. And so his rage and his anger, to what extent do you have pride? To what extent do you hold the steering wheel, the remote control so tightly? To, to, to what extent do you want your plans to work out? To what extent are you telling God, your prayers are telling God the way that he should work? Verses, next verses, I think uh, 13, 12. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned, here we go, and he went away in this rage. These two Syrian rivers are great. 
I remember when I had friends fly in from Oregon. I was in college. I'd met them on a summer missions project, and they were coming to the south, first time to ever see the south. And their initial comments were, man, y'all have a lot of trees, a lot of pine trees. And then they kind of sheepishly acknowledged or they offered their opinion that the Mississippi River wasn't as impressive as they thought it would be. And I don't don't know if they were looking for like Pacific Ocean or something. But the Mississippi is great and it is grand, as you know, because of its distance, because of its depth, because of its history, because of commerce and trade and travel, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because of Mark Twain and all. But th- these are two great rivers similarly in Syria. They're great, great rivers. And the Jordan River, has anybody ever been to the Jordan River? It's like a creek. It's really not impressive. And I know you're like, blasphemy preacher, Jesus was baptized there. But it's just really just like Jesus, you know, born in Nazareth. A prophet without honor in a dusty back road town. And the Jordan River is like a creek. And this, this man, Naaman, is with his pride is saying, how about waving the hand? How about we sing? How about a white robe and a dance and a kumbaya? You wave your hand. I get a warm feeling, a tingly glow, and it's done. And he's being told by an unlikely messenger, go. And by the way, this Jordan is approximately 15 miles. So it's inconvenient. It's humbling and it's inconvenient. Are you willing to do the humble thing? Are you willing to do what's inconvenient? Or you just, you just want the glory? This would be, by the way, akin to like when we talk about VIP, when we talk about the military, when we talk about the dominance of the world, this would be similar to say Vladimir Putin coming to my house with a cavalcade of heavy artillery and soldiers and I, I send out my assistant because I'm watching a show and I send out, I've got something on Netflix and I send out a personal assistant, not that I have one, but I send out an assistant to, glee, to greet him. This is analogous uh, to that. Next up, verse 13, but his servants came near and said to him, my father, is, is a, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Hey, will you not do this humble thing? You know how we play the game sometimes. You had one job. You had one thing, just this one thing, and you didn't do it. You didn't didn't do the one thing. And there's this one thing that he's asked to do, to be obedient. But pride is a killer. C.S. Lewis would call pride the granddaddy of all sins because it affects everything. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, this little dirty creek. According to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God in all his company. Naaman, by the way, was, was like, he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know there's no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Backing up a little bit, Naaman, it was like the meatloaf of the Old Testament. I'll do anything for healing, but I won't do that. But he did. He got to this place of obedience. And it gets kind of strange here. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So here's this man who offers a massive amount of his wealth. And it's the part of the story where the preacher needs to say that salvation... And healing 
And all the gifts that come from above are gifts of grace. Like I know some of you have wealth and you have money, you have power, it opens doors, you've got clout. Man, I'm not against it. But when you bring that stuff to God, it's not impressive. And we may impress others with it and it may open doors and give us control, but it doesn't oppress God. Salvation and healing and deliverance and redemption and all the deep things that our souls need are gifts of grace. By faith, you have been saved. It is, gra- it is God's grace. Your money, it doesn't matter. It's nothing that you can achieve. It's what you need to accept as a free gift. He disses the money. And in a really strange way, this is, this is kind of hard for us to understand culturally. Next up. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. He goes from probably like a million dollar level offering to some dirt. What does God want? Now, Elijah the prophet, he grasped this reality that people around him, everyone around him would misunderstand if Naaman could, could give the money. If there's a financial offering, it would send the wrong message. We come to God empty and we have to act obediently and we have to do as he says and it's not our wealth and it's not our accomplishment. Jeremiah chapter 9, let not the mighty man Let not him glory in his might. Let not the wealthy man glory in his wealth. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows that I am God, the God of loving kindness and justice. And so this financial gift is dissed. It's not accepted. I want to give you three things. Think about this. It was was a spot of death, a small spot of death on him that led him to this portal of life. What could Naaman control and what could Naaman not control? Everyone can grasp this. Naaman could not control being healed of leprosy, but he could control stepping into the river. What do you, what are you putting before the Lord? Where are you today when it comes to what you can't control? What problem can't you solve? What obstacle do you feel weak in overcoming? Is it a secret that's pulling you back? Is it something from your past that won't let you go forward? Is it in marriage? Is it in business? What is the need that you have? Where do you need healing? Lord, I can't, but you can. There are three things as we round toward home. I want to give you three things that got him to God. The first is this, a searching humility. The great man, the great man of valor, the man who had known victory, the man who was an insider, the man who was a part of the winning team, he wanted this to happen a certain way. But God, in a strange way, sends a Hebrew servant to tell him what to do. And he fought it. Naaman wanted the kings to rescue him, to help him. But God chose the humble servants. How many times do you think that's true? 
Oh, the people in power will give me what I need. But God's going to choose to bless you and heal you through humble servants. And think about this culturally. Patriarchal society. Militant environment. Battles. Loss of life. Overthrowing. Overtaking. Conquering cities and pillaging towns. And this is a Hebrew servant female child. And that's the one God chose to bring healing to this man. And she says, don't go to the great mighty doctors of Syria. Go to the king. The king of a despised and weak people, the king of Israel. He went to his king and his king sent him to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel, he ends up in Elijah. And Elijah doesn't even come out. As, as you see in the story, Elijah doesn't even come out. He sends his personal assistant. And then he doesn't take his money. And he's got to be humbled. And he's got to be inconvenient. Naaman could not heal himself of leprosy. All he could do was step into the river. And God used his searching humility it reminds me of this idea as I was writing this, just this whole idea, God does more with humbleness and faithfulness than with gifting and pride. And everybody, it seems, whether it was my recommendation or what, er, not everybody seems to be listening to the string of podcasts called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And there's the rise and fall of fill in the blank, the rise and fall of this, the rise and fall of that. That history just shows us so many rises and so many falls. And the Bible teaches a great truth. I bet everybody has heard, even if you don't come to church much, that pride comes before the fall, the rise and fall. And we exalt, like let's be a part of the solution in this, but we exalt gifting. And in the church we do this, like someone's gifting will get you a lot and the character is chasing, chasing from behind. And what we need is we need to lead with character and let gifting chase that. Character matters more. And God does more with humbleness, your humbleness and faithfulness, your faithfulness than with gifting and pride. And that can we just acknowledge is so counter to our culture, to what's in us as well. Second thing beyond a searching humility is a suffering servant. God used this humble servant to bring him life. The scripture teaches us, I want to make sure I keep this in front of you, that the wages of sin is death. This is a physical healing that led to a spiritual salvation. And physical healing and spiritual salvation can be so connected. You are body and you are soul. And God used this suffering servant to bring healing. And here's what happened in your salvation. God used a suffering servant. You see, what we see in this story is another clear picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Someone who gives up. Thirdly, a simple act of obedience. Beyond a searching humility, beyond a suffering servant, a simple act of obedience. The one thing that you must do. This is so simple that we miss this. Every life that gets changed, every movement that gets started, every work of God begins with a simple act of obedience. Now we can debate the word simple. What does it mean? Simple doesn't necessarily mean easy, right? But more times than not, when I play the role of counselor, uh, talking to people, talking to you, um, so um, I, I can't think of a single time where I point to something complex in your life and make it more complex. 
But the role of the counselor is to listen and to try to understand and be empathetic and to ask questions and draw out what you've missed. And when I talk to my pastor friends, when I go to therapy with my brothers in Christ and they speak into my life, they don't go to something complex. They go to something simple. And oftentimes it's just I have to wait on God or I have to do something that's really basic. And I have neglected to do it. Or I have, whether it's active rebellion or passive indifference, I'm not doing the one simple thing. What could the simple act of obedience be for you? Now, this man was required to dip into the river for his act of obedience seven times. I love this kind of stuff. I'm not going to tackle it today. I, I, I love numerology and it's part of scripture. Some of you get freaky with it, but there is something to be said about the seven times and there's beautiful stuff in the Bible about it. It's very intriguing. It's fascinating, good stuff, but dip into the river for obedience. The first step of obedience. Now, again, a picture of Jesus, but who else was baptized in this river Jordan? Years later, Jesus would be baptized in this river. And can I just stop in this moment and say to you, just as I'm saying some basic things this morning, like salvation's a free gift of God, your money, wealth, might, or power means nothing to God. For some of you, baptism, getting into the waters is the next step for you. And it's a step you should take. When people resist it and people say they shouldn't, well, I'm too old or I'm in leadership or I'm, you know, I've been around the church too long. It would be embarrassing. I can just hear Naaman's voice. And that pride, put down your pride and take this simple step. What, what, what simple act of obedience do you need to take? When I was 16 years old, the song was playing in church and the invitation was offered. I have a Baptist background, Baptist tradition. And the pastor that day was my uncle. I love the man. He's still preaching. He's like 87 years old. He's not any good, but he's still preaching. And he talked about surrender. And he asked us, what's God calling us to do? And I don't know what got over me, but man, I walked the aisle that day. And I had tears in my eyes. And I, I had no idea. I still don't. But I sensed that God was calling me into the ministry. So at that age, I never thought about being a doctor or lawyer or cowboy or such. I just thought about being a minister, about going into the ministry. And I sensed that God called me. And I look back to that one simple step, that step of obedience. Somebody said the biggest decisions that you can make are threefold, your master, your mission, and your mate. And maybe God's called you to be single, and that's a, a gift in and of itself. But many are married or will marry or will marry again. Your master, who are you going to serve? Your mission, what you're going to do in life? What, how do you contribute to the world? And then your mate. And that last one has been, as a lot of you know, a real blessing in my life. And it all came to be, we're about to celebrate 25 years of marriage, but it all came to be one night in Fort Collins, Colorado. I had been flirting with her for weeks. I mean, playing a game, stringing her out. And she was prompted, we were in this coffee shop, and she was prompted to do karaoke. That was big at the time. Do people still karaoke? It was huge. It was new. It was, all, it was awesome. And she grabbed a mic. I didn't know she could sing. Lauren, take note. That my girl can sing. She's hiding that gift under a bushel, by the way, to quote Jesus. But the girl could sing, and she grabbed the mic, and she sang, Diana Ross, set me free. Why don't you, babe? Get out of my life. You just keep me hanging on. And in that moment, I thought, man, I don't want to get out of her life, and I don't want to keep her hanging on. And that was the very thing, that simple act was the very thing that made me step up and say, let me go from fun and flirty to serious here, fun and serious. And I really want to pursue this relationship. I'm so grateful. A simple act of obedience. 
when Fondren was new and next week be here, we're going to celebrate 10 years as a church. And we were brand new. And I remember there was a Sunday morning before the service. I was praying. I had already done my push-ups. I was, you know, every sermon you get nervous. I'd done my push-ups and I'd prayed and I've just felt an impression from the Lord. Am I freaking y'all out? I just felt this impression from the Lord that, that I should um, ask our church to give money to buy a single mom a car. And I went with it. And it was such a cool thing to, for us uh, to, to be able to do. And it was kind of the first act of, I guess you would say, open generosity for us to give. And I remember weeks after that, our, our board of directors, they became elders. They decided, we decided that we would take the tithe and double it and we would give that away as a church. I remember at times when it's hurt, when we've gotten tight and we've wondered, especially as we've come over here, hey, let's, 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 let's fudge it a little bit and let's shift over and let's rename things and let's be creative, right? You can, you can be creative. And I'm not talking about unethical, but just like, we were just like, it was kind of that line between fear and faith. And I remember a couple of our elders going, man, let's make it hurt. Let's make our generosity hurt. Let's stay uncomfortable with our giving. It was for Fondren Church, a small act of obedience. And who knows what happens tomorrow, but I'm telling you, God has blessed our church, even in low numbers and pandemic and the slog of the virus and everything that we've been going through. Our generosity has gotten better and better and better through these years, even, even during COVID. Uh, we're just a few thousand below our budget this year, but Nick and God are telling me that we're going to meet it. We're going to make it. But every year our giving has grown. And I look back to a small act of obedience that we took early on when we told our people and told ourselves and we keep each other accountable, let's be a conduit of generosity for God. What small act of obedience do you need today? What is the next thing? It could be humbling for you. Can I just say, can I use this story of old to say, do the humbling thing? There'll be no waving of the hand the waving of the magic wand, no kumbaya, no white robes, no coal fire, no warm tingly glow. It's probably something that would humble you and be inconvenient for you. But God is calling you to do it. Can I say do it? Take a step to be baptized. Take a step to come to the altar and pray. Take a step to be a first-time giver. Take a step to share your faith with somebody. Take a step to bring the secret into the light and let God heal you. As our team comes up, I want to pray for you and over you. Think about maybe what came to mind when you saw the list of what you can control, what you can't control. What do you add to the list? What do you feel this morning? There's no button you can push. No levy you can pull. No wand that you can wave. You just simply can't. You can't heal yourself. And God uses a searching humility, a suffering servant, simple act of obedience you know what I feel in this moment just that if one or two or ten or more take that step of faith that God has called what could happen to us what could happen in your family what could happen in our community 
your apathy, your passivity, your reluctance, your fear? Would you be willing to step into the river? The humble and glorious, inconvenient act of obedience could be the very thing. God can use what surrender to Him more than what you think you can control. Maybe today you're hurting to the point where you've kind of given up like you're in church or you've woke up and tuned in online. But you've kind of given up. You're not really praying and asking anymore. You're just worrying. Don't stop the search. God cares. God is in control. Father, would you move in our midst in the lives of our people? Lord, thank you for a front row seat and two times when people take obedient steps. What an honor to see people pray and to seek you and to see people reach out, to see people uh, go from timidity to boldness. God, you've not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind to see that light switch come on. To see people find faith as move away from boredom and cynicism and unbelief to trust to a longing and to a clinging. And God, I pray for the one who feels like you're out of control, who's shaken fist at you this morning and maybe wants to bring you into a court of law to sue you for not working on their behalf. Lord, would you minister to that hurt today? Would you draw them to you? Lord, I thank you that as your word declares from a different prophet that we should not despise humble and small beginnings. And Lord, for those who are looking for the grandiosity, I pray that you move them, move us away from that. To look at what we're missing that's right in front of us. And Lord, even the blessing, the blessing of all the things that we can't control can in and of itself be the biggest blessing. Because then we know We know how you work and we know we have need and we know we need to bow the knee and we know we need to step into the river and we know we need to do things your way and not our own. In Jesus we pray, amen. Folks, would you stand and we're gonna sing and we are today gonna open up this altar. And I wanna ask you today, maybe for you, this morning could be a time where you come and you kneel right here. We're not gonna catch you on camera. But just to be right here, and I'm going to be down front if I can pray over anybody as we sing this song. It'll just be a few minutes. But you take a step of faith today. If you just want to surrender something, want to offer something to Him, want to say, God, I can't, but you can. God, I feel this, a thing spinning out of control. I want to ask you to be the one who's in control, that I would move today, you would move today from this just being me listening to what the preacher says to me seeing, believing that it can be true in my life. Come today and pray. Let me pray over you.